Turn with me, please, to the second chapter of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And I would like to tell you what I think is one of the strangest stories in the New Testament. This is a very odd miracle. Uh, we've heard it so often that we take for granted that this, uh, that this happening, this miracle, is somewhat unusual. Imagine, if you will, uh, a modern wedding reception. And uh, they run out of champagne. So the father of the bride looks up a friend of his who's there at the reception, and he says, uh, George, will you please run down to the grocery store and, and buy some more champagne? George says uh, not to worry, and he goes over to where the table is and the punch bowl and all the cups are arranged. He waves his hand over the punch bowl, and it magically fills with champagne. And everyone says, wow, did you see what George did? And George becomes the sort of person that you want to invite to any party that you have in the future. <laughs> now, I'm honest with you. At first reading, that's precisely what this miracle seems to be. It doesn't fit. God doesn't provide us with the luxuries of life. He does provide us with the finer things of life, but not necessarily the luxuries. And he doesn't run and fetch for us. So what, what is this miracle all about? How, how can we understand it? If Jesus is the revelation of the character of God, then at first reading, this miracle doesn't, it seems dissonant. It's not in harmony with what, what we know of the character of God. So there must be something else here. There is. It, it, it's called a sign in the story. A sign indicates that this is an allegory. It's an extended metaphor. It tells us something about the character of God that you might not observe the first time you read it. So we have to think about it a little bit. The, the scriptures not only give us uh, moral awareness, they also teach us to be more mentally aware. It teaches us to think. Studying the Bible sometimes is like reading an Agatha Christie novel. You have to look for clues along the way that help you to understand what's really happening. So let's look at the story with that in the back of our minds. What is it that the Lord wants us to learn about the character of God from this very strange miracle, the, the turning of water into wine? John says on the third day, that would be Wednesday, because uh, weddings uh, in ancient Israel were traditionally held on Wednesday. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee, and, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited and his disciples to the wedding. Remember from chapter 1, we were told, John told us, that Jesus had to go to Galilee. I think the reason he had to go to Galilee is because he'd been invited to a wedding there. And so uh, on Sunday evening, our Sunday evening, he made his way up to, uh, to Cana, probably staying with Nathaniel, since that was home, uh, Nathaniel's hometown. The six disciples of Jesus, which would include Nathaniel, must have stayed together for a night or two waiting for the wedding. And Jesus' mother was there, and apparently she was the hostess for the wedding. There's some thought, some traditional thinking that the, that the, that the groom is one of, uh, of Jesus' brothers, but uh, his half-brothers, but we don't know. And it doesn't matter, because the focus is not on the married couple, but it's on the wedding itself. That's the important element in the, in the miracle. So Jesus and his disciples came to, to Cana for the wedding. Cana is a it was a very small town, still is today, just a little Arab village up in Galilee to the west of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful little spot, particularly in the spring of the year when this wedding would have taken place. Looks a little bit like Emmett. They have large orchards, 
gardens there. Everything would be in bloom, green and lush. It's a, it's a nice spot, an appropriate spot for a spring wedding. And Jesus and his disciples and Jesus' mother gathered there. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, being a Jewish mother, I think what she probably said was, Oy vey, they have no wine. Because this was a social uh, catastrophe. This was a, a, a faux pas of the greatest magnitude. Because wine was very important to Jewish weddings. Because one purpose of a Jewish wedding was to express joy. There was an enormous amount of symbolism in Jewish weddings. They, they believed, rightly so, that, that God had married the first couple, that he presided over that wedding. And, and therefore, weddings were very important. But furthermore, weddings were a, a symbol. They, they illustrated the union of God and man and the joy that was the, that was the result of that, of that union of two into one. And uh, they, they feasted and they drank together as a way of expressing the joy that was, that was in their hearts because of God's reaching out and, and taking us in. Weddings were gala occasions in those days. Jewish weddings were. And, and it was a catastrophe that they, that they ran out of wine. So she came to Jesus. And uh, she apparently was prodding him a little bit. I don't know exactly what she had in mind when she came to him. Perhaps she thought he, this would be the time when he would manifest his character as, as the Son of God. She knew who he was, and she thought perhaps this is the moment of manifestation. After all, he was 30. It was about time they got on with his life's work. And like all good mothers, she was eager to see him get going. And uh, so she, she sidles up to him and she whispers in his ear, Oy vey, they have no wine. And he says to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, it sounds very harsh. To us. I, I like much better the NIV translation of this phrase. Dear woman, he says, why do you involve me? Because that's the, that's the idea that's, uh, that's in, the, in the metaphor. Literally, it's what's to me and to you. It's a way of distancing yourself from a person. It occurs a number of times uh, in, in the scriptures. What, what he's saying is you have one thought in your mind. I have another. You're thinking they need wine. I have something more to do, and, and the time of my manifestation is not yet. My hour has not yet come. I'd be forcing the issue if, if I declared myself for, for who I am. So Mary says to the servants, not at all put off by what Jesus said to her, whatever he says to you, do it, which when you think about it is not a bad idea at all. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So that would be approximately 150 gallons of water. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter, and they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, that is, their palate is dulled, then that which is poor, but you have kept the good wine until now. There, there were uh, six of these large uh, stone... Uh, 
urns that were set outside of the area where they were feasting. They were there because of the Jewish practice, the traditions, the customs of washing before meals. This wasn't a matter of hygiene. It was a matter of religion. It was ritual, ceremonial washing. One of the one of the longest and most elaborate books in the in the Talmud, this book that we've talked about from time to time, this collection of rabbinic teachings, one of the one of the longest tractates in the Talmud prescribes how you wash your hands. Some thirty chapters on, on washing your hands, washing pots and pans, elaborate procedures, almost like a surgeon would uh, would follow in order to 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 wash his hands, which they had to follow, not for hygienic reasons, but for for ritualistic. Reasons And Jesus considered it all rigmarole. It was just religion without any purpose, without any meaning. A lot of the Jewish people. But this is one element of their religion, which in Jesus' day was way off base. Because they were, they were neglecting the, the, the greater issues, the issues of the heart. In Mark 7, Jesus taught about this matter of, of over-scrupulous washing of the hands. He, he said... By your traditions, you have, you've done away with the word of God. You've missed the whole point. You don't realize that I'm not concerned about what goes into your mouth. That doesn't defile anyone. It's what comes out. It's what's in the heart that matters. I, I have a good friend who told me that that verse in itself has set her straight on this whole matter of dieting. There's nothing wrong with dieting, but we shouldn't be preoccupied with what goes into our mouth. What God is mostly concerned about is what's coming out, because that's an indication of the heart. And all of this religious stuff, this ceremony, this endless, meaningless, worthless ritual, rigmarole, I don't know how else to describe it, that they were engaged in was empty and meaningless. It didn't do a thing for anybody. It didn't change anybody's heart. It didn't make men more loving and sensitive to their families. It didn't teach them to deal with their deception and and their, their tendency to lie their way out of problems. They didn't teach them to deal with their sexual fantasies. They had no power to change anyone. It was useless and meaningless. But that's what they were doing, washing their hands, getting themselves ready ritually to eat, to feast. And apparently the water was all used up, so Jesus said, fill them up again. And they probably thought he was going to have them go through some more, uh, some more ceremony. And he says, now draw some off and take it to the head waiter. And I'm sure they must have thought what you and I would think. Uh, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. They try to pass off this water as fine wine. But they remembered Jesus' words, and they did it. And they took it to the head waiter. And uh, he poured some in his glass and gave it a little swirl and sniffed it and, and sipped it. And he said, oh, that is fine wine. That is great wine. And someone said to him later, mostly we serve the good wine first. Why have you saved it for the last? And I'm sure he must have thought or said rather smugly, we will serve no wine till it's time. <clears throat> now, I don't know what he said because uh, Jesus doesn't tell us, but uh, or John doesn't tell us, but uh, they were all amazed because the best wine came last. One of the remarkable things about this miracle is the way Jesus went about doing it. No hocus-pocus, no magic ritual, no screwing up of the face. He didn't roll his eyes into heaven. He didn't plead with God to do something. 
make the miracle happen. He just quietly told them, draw off the water now and take it to the head waiter. And they did, and it was fine wine. He quietly turned the water into wine. That's the miracle. Now, John says this is the beginning of the signs which he did. This was the first miracle that Jesus did, which puts the light all these silly stories about Jesus making little birds out of clay and clapping his hands, and they're flying away that are found in some of the books that were written between the Old and New Testament, and some were, were written after. This was the first of Jesus' miracles. He didn't do any miracles as a child growing up. He didn't do any miracles until he was 30 years of age. This was the first. And John says it's a sign. It signifies something. It's an allegory. We need to know what it means. And it was a way of manifesting his glory. Remember what John said in chapter 1? The Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is, he, he showed us things as they really are. He gave us reality, and he did it so gently, so graciously, so lovingly, so tenderly. So we can learn from this something of his glory. There's an element of truth which is revealed in such a gracious way in this miracle. I love this miracle. Once you understand what, what in John intends us to understand by it. Now, some would say this is a creation miracle. This is a way in which Jesus showed that he was God and was thus the creator. And it is true. In the prologue, we're told that he's the one who created everything and he holds it together. He is the creator God of the universe. Augustine was the first to point out, uh, C.S. Lewis late, later popularized the idea, but Augustine was the first to point out that, uh, that what Jesus actually did is to simply speed up the natural process that goes on all the time around us. The water that falls in the form of rain goes into the grapevine. It produces grapes. The process of fermentation produces wine. And uh, that's a miracle, which we take for granted. It happens every day. It's so natural, we don't even think of it as supernatural. But it is. It comes from God. And what Jesus did is simply speed up that miracle. And then he, and in so doing, he showed us that he was the creator God. That's possible. But I think there's something else here. Now, before I tell you what it was and what it is, I want to say something about wine. Because if I don't say this... Nothing else that I say will have any it will make any sense. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, here, here comes Roper's prohibition speech. <laughs> but I'm not going to say anything about abstinence because abstinence is not a Christian idea. It may be Islamic, but, but it's not Christian. The Bible does not teach abstinence from, from alcoholic beverages. It teaches moderation. It's not wrong to drink. It's a sin to be drunk. And that's the clear teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And anything more than that is legalism. If anyone ever tells you that it is a sin to drink, that's legalism. And legalism is deadly. It destroys churches. Paul said it's like leaven that permeates the entire church. And it, and it can destroy the life in a body. So we don't want to go beyond Scripture. The wine that they drank was an alcoholic beverage. And, and, and it's not sin to drink it. Now, they, didn't, they, they could not distill liquors. They didn't have that technology. But they could, they could produce, a, uh, through the process of fermentation, an, an alcoholic beverage. Just like our wine or beer today is the same thing. And in the Old Testament, at their feasts, they drank wine and beer, products of grain and, 
in the grape. And in the New Testament, you have Jesus going to a party and they were drinking wine. I had someone say to me recently, I can't picture Jesus with a wine glass in his hand. Well, that's, that's because they're thinking in terms of tradition and not biblically. It was no problem to our Lord. It wasn't a sin. Drunkenness is a problem. But not drinking alcoholic beverages, not drinking wine. Now, there's some that say, well, it, this wasn't wine. It was grape juice. But the problem is the, the Greek word oinos, from which we get our word wine, everywhere in both the New Testament and uh, in classical Greek refers to the alcoholic beverage that, that we call wine. Furthermore, if it isn't wine, if it's grape juice, then it, Paul's statement in Ephesians 5 is utter nonsense when he says, don't be drunk with wine. If he's saying, don't get drunk on grape juice, you've got a real problem. You might drown, but you wouldn't get drunk. You might turn deep purple and slosh when you walk, but, you know, you're not going to get drunk on grape juice. Now, I think there are all kinds of reasons why a Christian may not drink. It's a real problem today in our society Drunk driving, alcoholism. There are real problems, and Christians may, for various reasons, decide that they're not going to drink. And certainly you wouldn't want to drink before in front of someone who has a problem with alcohol, who is an alcoholic and struggling with the problem. That's a matter of just being sensitive. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating drinking, Jesus, or Paul said. There's greater issues at stake. So you may want to lay aside that right. That, that's all right. See, But we need to understand that drinking is not prohibited in scripture and therefore it was not wrong for Jesus and his disciples to drink obviously it wasn't because he never sinned and therefore it's not wrong to see what wine signifies and understand it in that way that's how we understand the parable the miracle and it is a parable in the front of your bulletin I have a quotation from Psalm 104 God gives grass for the cows and he gives wine to make man's heart merry purpose of wine in the Old Testament and New Testament era was to give joy. And it was a, it's a consistent symbol throughout Scripture for something that produces joy. I think, then, that the point of the miracle is this. Life without Jesus is like a wedding without wine. It's a drag. That's the point. We have all sorts of things that... that, that we think produce joy. The world tells us, secular society tells us that certain things will produce joy. The Jews believed that their religion would produce joy. That's why all the ceremony, the washing and so forth. But it didn't produce joy. It just, it just hung them up. Made them feel more guilty. Religion, going to church, just for the sake of going to church is the dullest thing I can imagine. I'd far rather be fishing. Then in a church meeting, I, I, for the last couple of weeks, I've been walking to church on Sunday mornings because it's so nice outside. So I usually walk down Northview from our house. And I was walking this morning, and it occurred to me I had on this blue suit, which I never wear. It's, this is my marrying bearing suit. <laughs> and the only reason I wore it this morning is because nothing else was clean. So I was rummaging around in my closet, and I found this and put it on. But I, I was thinking, here I was walking down, Fair, down Northview Avenue with a blue pinstripe suit on and a tie of all things on Sunday morning 
beautiful outside. This fellow was floating across in a hot air balloon, waving at me, you know. And here I am, carrying a Bible, going off to church on Sunday morning. And I'm sure people looked at me and thought, what a bum deal. What a drag to go to church on Sunday morning. And I have to agree. If I'd seen me walking down the street, I'd think the same thing. There's any joy in just religion for the sake of religion, you know, washing the hands, being involved in church services. No joy in that. It doesn't produce life. There's no joy in marriage, per se, apart from God. You're told all your life, if you, know, you find the right mate, you'll be happy. You'll live happily ever after. It isn't true. You know that. Marriage is a lot of hard work. It hurts a lot. There are moments of joy. But by and large, it's just, it's just tough. It's hard work. And apart from God, it wouldn't be any fun at all. Children aren't any fun. <laughs> I heard all my life that your children will make you, give you joy. They don't give you joy. They give you a lot of grief. <laughs> you love your kids, but they're a real pain. There's a lot of joy. I mean, there's very little joy in that thing. Very ambitious uh, book title, The Joy of Sex. There isn't much joy in sex. What's the big deal? Doesn't last very long. Then you got to get on with the business of living. There's very little joy there, you see. I, I think that's why people party. That's why they party all the time. They're trying to find joy. But parties aren't much fun. Not the parties I've gone to. They leave you empty and unsatisfied and there's no joy there. But see, the problem is they're going to the wrong parties. Once upon a time, there was a party in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus turned up, and he turned water into wine. With a quietly spoken word, without, uh, without seemingly any effort at all, he transformed a common element into wine. Good wine, fine wine, and Jesus will do the same thing for you. He'll take your dull, boring, humdrum, meaningless, worthless life, and he'll give it taste and zest and body and fragrance and bouquet. That's what he does for your life. He'll give you joy. There isn't anything else in the world that will produce that joy. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, There is in this life, ultimately, no joy. It only comes from the Lord Jesus. And he's the ones that, one that adds that, that, that quality that we so desperately search after. We try it in every arena of life. There's no joy out there. There's no joy in beautifying your home. There's no joy in beautifying your body. Ultimately, those things become empty and meaningless. There's only joy in Jesus coming to him. Feeding upon Him, eating and drinking of Him, getting to know Him, loving Him, walking with Him, obeying Him. That's where your joy comes from. I was struck this time in reading through the story, uh, the statement, normally people serve the good wine first, you save the best for last, and I couldn't help but think that uh, that's so true of life. It's so true. The Lord has saved for me the best for at the last of my life. I, uh, you know, we 
people tell us all the time, that youth is where it's at. Those are the halcyon years. But it isn't true. I wouldn't go back and relive those years for all the tea in China. I don't mind getting old. I think it's great because the Lord has saved the best wine for last. I would have to say that these last few years have been the hardest years of my life. I can really identify with Abraham. The worst tests came later on with him. And I think they do very often for us. I've had more physical problems. I've had more emotional pressure. I've had more problems with my kids. There's just been one strain after another. But I can honestly say that these last years are the best years of my life. I love the Lord more. I'm gaining more understanding of who He is. I'm still struggling with sin, but I have a greater awareness of His love for me and His forgiving heart and the grace that's available to me. And I just am reveling in Him. These are the best years of my life. I wouldn't go back and relive them for anything. He saved the best for last. So, come grow old with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made. Let's pray. Perhaps you're one of those that uh, set out to taste life and you found it unsatisfying and empty. You've been looking in the wrong places, you've been going to the wrong parties. You need to know that that it's the Lord who comes into your life and, and supplies the joy that you're looking for. Would you ask Him to come in? If you've never done that before, it's simply a matter of opening the door of your life and asking Him to come in and take up residence there. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in. And eat with him. Eat and drink and feast and make your your life joyful and full of meaning. Will you ask him in? Jesus said, He who comes to me, I will never by any for any reason cast him out. He doesn't turn anyone away. Doesn't reject anyone's offer when they ask him to come in, he comes in to stay. Would you ask Him in to be your Savior and your Lord? Thank Him for dying on the cross for you. Thank Him for being your risen Lord. Invite Him to to take up His place, His rightful place in your heart. And perhaps some of you, though you have known the Lord for years, have been looking for joy in in all the wrong places, trying to find it in, in making money or gaining prominence, position. And you know that all those things are empty. They don't, they don't matter in the end. I'd like to invite you to come back to the Lord and, and center your life upon Him. Tell Him you want to love Him and submit to Him. Lord, thank You so much for being available to us Thank you for loving us in this way and for making and, and, and for being the one that we need. We want you to, to rule in our lives. We want you to fill our lives with 
with satisfaction, with meaning. And we thank you for providing that element in our life. We thank you in Jesus' name.